You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. A little break from Genesis with Trevor away. Uh, who here has a really busy life and schedule? Assuming, yeah, I see a lot of hands. Some people aren't putting up their hands. I'm sure a lot of people who didn't put up their hands also have a busy life. But uh, yeah, most of us would probably say that we're very, very busy. Many of us would even say we're busier than we have ever been before. Busyness reveals what we value. What do I mean? When we get busy, we tend to make choices about what activities we will make time for and what activities we will cut out. As believers, this should be a very intentional making time for good things and cutting out the unhelpful things or sinful things. We should be intentional to make time for the Lord in the spiritual disciplines, spending time with Him, communing with Him, seeking Him. We should also be intentional about cutting out things that are not conducive or helpful to our sanctification, to our growth, so that we can faithfully serve the Lord and continually be formed into deeper Christ-likeness. When life gets busy, what do you make intentional time for, and what do you cut out? Just as a branch that is cut off from the vine cannot bear fruit on its own, so too Christians cut off from Christ cannot bear fruit. Christ is the source and substance of our spiritual lives. I'm going to say that a few times because that's really important. He is the one that provides growth. He is the one that provides strength. He is the one that provides wisdom and gives us everything that we need. Apart from him, we can do nothing. How much time do you spend abiding in Christ? That's going to be a big question through this passage here. Jesus outlines the importance of our abiding with him, our remaining in him, in John 15. As he and the disciples walk from the upper room toward the Mount of Olives, shortly before his crucifixion, Jesus gives them a command which is key for every spiritual believer's life and vitality. He says, abide in me. In a culture of constant busyness, distraction, entertainment, and media, we need this exhortation as well, each and every day. So many different things want to pull us away from a simple abiding in Christ, and if we aren't careful, we may end up abiding in the culture more than in Christ, and thereby lose our spiritual vitality and connection with God. Apart from Christ, we cannot be obedient to his commands. Apart from Christ, we cannot defeat sin. Apart from Christ, we cannot please God. Let's pray as we dive into John 15. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today and for the opportunity to be here to worship alongside fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, you are good, you are holy, you are loving. Uh, Even in our faithlessness, Lord, you remain faithful. We thank you for uh, just your word that you have blessed us with, a revelation of yourself and given us commands as to how we are to live and uh, important commands that without, without doing these things, we would, we would not be able to please you or know you. 
Lord, we pray that as we open your word, you would uh, give us insight and wisdom, soften our hearts, convict us of where we need change, and encourage us with the hope that is in Christ. Be with us this morning. Guide us as we go through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. So our text this morning is John 15, verses 1 through 8. So let's read that together. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So here in this passage, as Jesus is talking to his disciples, we are going to see four things. God's objective, God's means, God's promise, and God's purpose. These scriptural truths tell us the what, the how, the why, all about abiding in Christ. This is God's way of shaping his people, forming them into Christ-likeness, drawing them to himself and into alignment with his will, and it starts with God's objective. So we see that first, God's objective, in verses 1 and 2. Jesus starts this discourse by saying, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So we can maybe think that this uh, idea, this metaphor, kind of just came out of nowhere, that Jesus just thought of this, or some people say he was walking past the temple and he saw the golden vine above the door, or he was walking through a garden and saw a vine. But there's actually a deeper Old Testament background for this metaphor that will help us just to understand the fullness of it. Uh, in the Old Testament, one of the common images for Israel was that of a vine or a vineyard. Israel was said to be God's vine that he planted. Psalm 80, verses 8 through 11, says, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. So you can see there, God is said to have brought this vine out of Egypt, planted it in the promised land for the intention of it bearing fruit for his glory and for the good of the nations. This vine, however, if you know your Old Testament history, did not fulfill its intended purpose. Jeremiah 2.21 says, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? This vine was supposed to bear good fruit, but instead it bore wild, bad fruit, not pleasing to the Lord. And perhaps the most well-known Old Testament reference to this vine imagery is in Isaiah 5. So you turn there with me quick, and we'll look at Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. This passage is a song. It's a dirge. 
It's, it pictures the terrible failing of the vineyard of the Lord, despite everything that God did for it. Let's read verses 1 through 7 of Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Isaiah here paints a picture of which the people listening to him would have been connecting really well in their agricultural society. Uh, They would have been outraged. They would have been crying out against this vineyard and the tragedy of it bearing wild fruit despite everything that the gardener did for it to produce good fruit. Isaiah calls them to judge, and then he explains the punishment on the vineyard for its bad crop. The people would have been connecting well at that point Glad that the vineyard was being destroyed for being so terrible and doing the opposite of what it should have been doing based on the conditions in the gardener's work. Then in verse 7, right as the people would be excited, like, yes, like, destroy the vineyard, he tells them that the vineyard, the vine that he's talking about, is Israel and Judah. God, the vine dresser, had planted them in the promised land to bear good fruit, but they bore bad fruit. So they were going to be judged. Then if you know your Old Testament history, shortly after Israel fell, the northern kingdom fell, and then not long after that, Judah fell and was taken into exile. And so now in John 15, Jesus comes back to this same imagery that we saw in Isaiah. He says, I am the true vine. In making this statement, Jesus calls to mind Israel as the former vine, the failed vine, the false vine, and then points to himself as the true vine. In Jesus, the vine dresser, who Jesus identifies as God the Father, will produce the fruit that he desires. Where Israel as the vine failed, Jesus as the true vine will succeed. God's objective is that his people bear fruit. Lightfoot says, Hitherto Israel had been the vine into which everyone that would worship the true God must be grafted. But from henceforward they were to be planted into the profession of Christ. Jesus, not Israel, is the true source of spiritual life. Then in verse 2, God, as the vine dresser, will work with the branches connected to the vine in two ways. The ones not bearing fruit, he'll cut off. And the ones bearing fruit, he will prune, make them more fruitful. It is evident that God is looking for fruit, because he cuts off fruitless branches that don't fulfill their purpose, and works with the fruitful ones that they will be even more fruitful. What is this fruit? That's a great question. I'm glad that you asked. 
This term could be used broadly, uh, but in the context of John's writings, it appears to be primarily keeping Jesus' commands, especially that of loving one another. That's a big theme in John's gospel and his letters. But we also know that as believers, we're supposed to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Even further, one commentator, Harris, says, the fruit is not only Christian character, especially love, but also all the benefits derived by other people from obedient Christian living. And Carson notes that to limit this fruit to only one aspect, such as love alone or obedience alone, would be too reductionistic. So instead, we should understand it as an inclusive fruit, taking into account all of these things that I just mentioned together. This fruit, Christian character, obedience, love, benefits for outsiders as well from our Christian living, is what is the goal here. So in these first two verses, it's clear that God's objective is that his people bear fruit. Are you bearing fruit? Take a look at your own life. Examine for a second. Do you exhibit love for others? Do you obey Jesus' commands as found in Scripture? Do you display the fruit of the Spirit? Or do you display bad, rotten, wild fruit? Think, picture yourself for a moment as a branch. And if God were to come to you personally, right now, as the vine dresser, brandishing his shears, would he prune you, shaping you, forming you to be more fruitful, more Christ-like, more in his image? Or would he cut you off altogether as a degenerate branch that bears no pleasant fruit? That can be a tough thing to picture. It's important. God's objective is for his people to bear fruit. The second thing we see in this passage is the means by which this objective is accomplished. God's objective is that his people bear fruit. But how is this to happen? Jesus illuminates the means by which people bear fruit in verses 3 through 6. He says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So in verse 3, Jesus is assuring his disciples that they are clean, good branches, because of the word which he has spoken to them. They believed in his name, trusted his words, and are now good branches attached to the vine. Now that they're good branches attached to the vine, how can they continue to bear fruit? Jesus continues in verse 4 and says, plainly, abide in me and I in you. The means God has supplied for his people to bear fruit is to abide in Christ and let him abide in us. Jesus continues with that metaphor of the vine and branches, saying that just as branches can't bear fruit apart from the vine, neither can they, the disciples, bear fruit apart from him. He's saying that the only way for believers to be fruitful and obedient is to abide in him, to be connected to him, to remain in him. 
Jesus is the source of all power and life and vitality. Jesus says it plainly. The one who abides in me bears much fruit, but apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus is the source and substance of all spiritual life and vitality. Do you understand the importance of this connection between you and Jesus for life and godliness? Sometimes we can think, oh, if I just work hard enough, I can do all these things that please God. That's foolishness. Don't fall into that trap. Apart from Christ, we can do what? A little bit? Something? Nothing. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We must understand that all of our strength, all of our power for living a life pleasing to God does not come from us, but comes only from Christ. And therefore, we must abide in him. Take a look also at the warning in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. The surefire way to prove that you're not a believer is to neglect abiding in Christ and thereby not bear fruit. Some people with this passage become confused, thinking about who are the branches, uh, what about eternal security? Isn't it biblical that once Jesus has saved us, we're saved? Can you lose your salvation based on this passage? And without preaching a different sermon, yes, Jesus does save all of his people. Jesus says in John 10, 28 and 29, just a, a few chapters before, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So then what's going on with these branches? John gives us another hint in 1 John 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So some people appear as though they are branches. They profess faith in Christ, they prove, but they prove by the way they live that they never actually had faith. True faith is a faith that works. We've heard that many times before recently. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But true faith works itself out in the way one lives. The way one lives their life is an evidence of whether they have faith or not. Jesus warns, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. We would do well to take that warning seriously. It's not a good idea, necessarily, to abide in Christ. It's necessary to abide in Christ. It's not one of those things like, oh yeah, if I have time... I'll abide in Christ today. But otherwise, I think I have enough strength today. I can get by on my own. I can make it. We must abide in Christ. If anyone does not abide, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Carter says, a fruitless disciple is no disciple at all. The only way to bear fruit, the means that God has provided for bearing fruit, is abiding in Christ. So then it follows, if someone doesn't abide in Christ, he's cut off. The means that God has appointed for his people to bear fruit is to abide in Christ. 
So, do you abide in Christ? Do you seek him as the ultimate source of spiritual life and vitality and strength? Or do you seek to do your Christian work out of your own strength? We must understand that apart from him, we can do nothing. Verse 5. The means which God has appointed for his people to bear fruit is to abide in Christ. The next thing we see is God's promise in verse 7. Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What does that mean? That seems like a little bit big of a promise, right? Anything I ask? When we abide in Christ, our will becomes conformed to his. As we abide in him and draw near to him and commune with him, he reorients our hearts and renews them, pointing them at the proper goal, which is God's glory. John writes in 1 John 5, 14 and 15, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So often we pray in a way that is aimed at our own comfort or our own selfish desires. James says in James 4, verse 3, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. When we're not abiding in Christ, we become so preoccupied with our own selfish desires and wants and not our true goal, our true purpose, which is God's glory. We think life would be easier if this situation was fixed or different. Rather than, how can I bring God glory through this situation or through this thing that has happened to me? When we reorient ourselves in that way, aiming at God's glory... Suffering has a purpose greater than ourselves. Often, suffering is a way that God is pruning us, making us more like Christ. I don't know about you, but if there is anything that can make me more Christ-like, I want to go through that thing. It's painful often. It hurts often, but we're becoming more like Christ. When we're concerned with our own comfort, we lose sight of the bigger picture. We should be people who pray according to God's will, as John writes, not people who pray to spend our requests on our own passions, as James warns about. John Stott said, It's only when Christ's words abide in us that our prayers will be answered. Then we can ask what we will, and it shall be done, because we shall will only what he wills. As we abide in Christ, he purifies our affections, He gives us a heart filled with love for him and a concern for his will above all else. Even at cost to ourselves. Besides this, prayer isn't just about receiving things from God, like wishes from a genie. Oswald Chambers said it well. Prayer is not simply getting things from God. That is only the most elementary kind of prayer. Prayer is coming into perfect fellowship and oneness with God. Prayer brings us into closer fellowship and communion with God. Prayer unites us with him. Prayer helps us abide in him. And God's promise is to align us with himself through prayer as we abide in Christ. Do you find yourself increasingly drawing closer to God in prayer? Conforming yourself to his will, desiring his glory? Or do you find yourself asking selfishly for things so that you can spend it on your passions? 
Do you view prayer primarily as a means of communion with God in which he shapes you and forms you into greater Christ-likeness every day? Prayer should be viewed as one of the ways God brings us closer and closer to himself, making our will come into alignment with his. That is one of the sweetest benefits of prayer. Are you someone who is drawing closer to God in prayer? Because the promise is sweet when we do so. And now in verse 8, we see the fourth thing, God's purpose in all of these things. Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So here, Jesus is referring to fruit-bearing. In essence, he's saying, By your fruit... By your fruit-bearing, my Father is glorified. Ultimately, as I've mentioned briefly already, speaking of prayer, our goal in life should be to bring God glory. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one asks, what is the chief end of man? And the answer reads, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The world throws around so many contrary views about what the chief end of man is. The world says man's chief end is to have a good time for the short time that we're here. Live it up. The world says that man's chief end is to find love. The the world says man's chief end is to cheat death and reach immortality by downloading your consciousness onto a computer. We can be gods with the technology that we create. The world says man's chief end is to amass so much money and wealth and fame and be viewed as the best by everyone. The world says all sorts of insane nonsense about man's chief end. The world cuts out God. The world denies its very creator and sustainer. Man was created for God's glory. It's easy to forget that and seek our own glory, seek our own comforts, seek our own pleasures, seek our own whatever you choose. Insert whatever that is for you. In your daily life, do you see God's glory as your chief end? Do you seek in all things to glorify God above all else? Paul encourages the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10.31, saying, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. God's purpose in our abiding and fruit-bearing is ultimately his glory. Secondly, you can see in that verse, this abiding and fruit-bearing proves that we're disciples of Jesus. Again, your life should be an evidence. It is an evidence of whether you are in Christ or not. This abiding and fruit-bearing is not efficacious for salvation. We're not working for our own righteousness. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but it is a good indicator or evidence that we are truly his, that we have true faith. If anyone does not abide in him, he is cut off. So we've seen God's objective, God's means, God's promise, and God's purpose. And so I think the biggest question looming in all of our minds right now is, what does it mean to abide in Christ? 
You keep saying, abide in Christ, abide in Christ, abide in Christ. True believers abide in Christ. True believers have to abide in Christ. Without abiding in Christ, you'll be cut off. So it seems like abiding is quite important. One might say that reading the Bible and praying is abiding in Christ. And that's a good start, but let's go take it a little bit deeper. Let's flesh it out a little bit more than that. Abiding in Christ, rather than being physical actions is all about the relationship that we have with Christ, remaining in Christ. The way to foster this relationship and grow closer to God in Christ is through the spiritual disciplines. So while the disciplines themselves in themselves are not abiding, they are an essential component to proper abiding. As we engage God in the word and pray to him, drawing near to him with our praises, thanksgivings, requests, confessions, we can abide in Christ. As we abide in Christ through the spiritual disciplines, God will prune us and continually make us more fruitful. God will smooth out our hard edges, fill us with his grace and peace, cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in us, and make us more Christ-like. And he does all of that as we abide in him. And I fear that we don't do abiding very well. In our culture of endless entertainment, it's easy, really, really easy, to abide in something other than Christ. Everyone abides in something. Let me say that again. Everybody abides in something. Take a second and think about how you spend most of your time. Do you spend more time watching TV each day or reading your Bible? Which can you quote better, your favorite TV show or God's inspired word? Do you spend more time each day scrolling through Facebook or Instagram than you do conversing with your Heavenly Father in prayer? I've been feeling convicted of all three of these things this week, and it sucks to admit that you might abide more in the world than in Christ. But honesty is so crucial as you move towards changing these things. Be honest with yourself right now and be honest with God. Don't fall for the lies of the world, for the lies of our culture. You aren't missing out on anything by abiding in Christ. You aren't missing out on anything by abiding in Christ. But the opposite is true. You are missing out if you are abiding in the world. What are you abiding in? Our culture is so obsessed with entertainment and comfort that we no longer find delight in the spiritual disciplines, or even any disciplines at all, for that matter. And we view the spiritual disciplines as boring work, things we have to dutifully perform as someone who professes faith in Christ. As one author put it, we, along with our culture, are amusing ourselves to death. Our attention spans have diminished so that we can't focus on God's word or prayer for longer than the average length of a commercial break. Where has the joy in communion with God gone? I fear that sometimes we are so preoccupied with the fun thing that we're going to do after our work, after our disciplines, uh, that we rush it. Or we're so preoccupied with the next thing we have to get done today that we rush our time with God. The spiritual disciplines should be a delight for us because they're the main vehicle in which we Abide with Christ. 
our Savior and our Lord. They are one of the major ways that we connect with him, remain in him, abide in him. And that should be our greatest joy. It shouldn't be dragging my feet to go read the Bible because it's so boring. But after, I'm really excited because I'm going to go go watch whatever the next YouTube video is or something else. We get so much more excited about that next thing that we don't enjoy our communion with God. And I'm not saying that TV, movies, music, social media, all of those things are inherently evil. They're not. But as with anything, excessive obsession is idolatry. Sometimes we can look at some of the Old Testament stories and people worshiping Baal and all these gods and making a golden calf and we can think, oh, that's crazy. They are so terrible, so sinful. I would never do that. And sure, maybe you wouldn't go craft a golden calf out of a furnace and bow down to it, but we all have idols in our lives as well. We are not immune to idolatry. And you can see the idols of our culture based on the media of our culture. And even further, all of these things that we spend so much time watching and hearing and putting into our minds shape our thoughts and our desires. So we need to be watchful. We should be seeking to be shaped more by God's word than by anything else. Often, the case is that we are shaped so much more by the world around us than we are by God's word. And that is both our own fault and to our own detriment. We are missing out if we don't abide in Christ. Let's take it another step further. Do you feel... Do you ever wonder why you feel so powerless to defeat your sin when temptation comes? Do you ever wonder why the temptation feels so much more powerful than your desire for righteousness, your desire for obedience? Why do so many Christian men, for example, of all ages struggle with lust, whether that manifests itself in a pornography addiction or in an impure thought life? Why do so many Christians struggle with excessive greed or anger or pride? Why do so many Christians struggle with keeping their speech pure? The easy answer, which I'm sure you're thinking, is because we're all sinners. And that's true. We shouldn't resign ourselves to that and just live in it because it's the reality. We should be battling against it because we have freedom in Christ. We are new creations in Christ. And while we still struggle with sin, we should be winning that battle more than we're losing it. Why are these things so prevalent even in the Christian community? I think it's because we allow ourselves to be shaped so much more by the culture around us, by the world, than by God's word and prayer. John Owen said, if we do not abide in prayer, we will abide in temptation. Are you satisfied with five minutes of prayer in the morning and then five minutes of prayer before bed and a few 30-second prayers sprinkled in there for your food? Or maybe even less than that? Are you spending countless hours abiding in the culture and then expecting 10 minutes of abiding in Christ to give you the strength you need to defeat your sin, to change your desires, to desire righteousness and holiness over and against your sinful pleasures? Notice the disconnect in that thinking. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. So while we may say, yes, I want to defeat this sin, we separate our sacred life and our secular life. 
we separate abiding in Christ with everything else. So we'll take five minutes, and I'm being really spiritual for this five minutes, and then the rest of the day, I'm going to go do whatever I want, and watch whatever I want, and say whatever I want, and live a life that's the exact same as the world. I'm not going to pursue holiness. I'm not going to keep praying. But we should be doing these things all throughout the day. Prayer should be our constant connection with God. Anything that comes up, go to prayer. And how do we abide in God's word throughout the day? If we're at work, we don't have our Bible, we're busy, things are going on, memorize the word. I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We must abide in Christ. So think about yourself for a moment, personally. What is the most prevalent sin issue in your life right now? Think about that honestly. And don't say nothing because we all have something. We are all sinners in need of grace. Do you feed that thing for hours upon hours each day? and expect five minutes of devotional time to defeat your competing passions for these things and holiness? How much do you pray about your sin? Or is the extent of it, God, I confess my sin, please forgive me, help me be better, and then that's it? Or do you actively battle your sin in prayer, find relevant scriptures, saturate your mind and your heart with the truth of God's word over the lies of the culture? In whom are you abiding? The culture or Jesus? A.W. Tozer said, It's because of the hasty and superficial conversation with God that the sense of sin is so weak and that no motives have the power to help you hate and flee from sin as you should. Why is there such a disconnect in our minds between abiding in Christ and our struggle against sin? These things are integrally linked. If we do not abide in Christ, we will not produce fruit. If we do not abide in Christ, we will not have the power to defeat sin and be obedient to his word. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Take action against your sin. Cut out the unhelpful and damaging input that you expose yourself to each day. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Does that sound trivial to you? Any branch that does not abide in me is cut off and withers. The branches are gathered together, thrown into the fire, and burned. We need to take radical action against your sin. Are you struggling with pornography? That can be a scary question to hear, if you are. Take action against your sin. Stop watching shows and movies that glorify sex above everything else. Stop listening to music filled with sexual innuendos and lyrics that display the sexual desires of the artist, if you can even call them an artist. Stop scrolling through social media profiles of people who show as much skin as possible to get likes. Does that mean canceling your Netflix subscription? Then cancel it. Does that mean deleting social media? Delete it. Does that mean completely deleting your Spotify library and starting over from scratch to discover new music? Then do it. Take Pride as another example. Do you spend time watching shows or movies with narcissistic main characters that glorify themselves above all others? Do you listen to music in which the singer brags about how amazing they are and how much better they are than everyone else, including God? 
These things that we put into our minds shape our actions. Insert whatever your sin struggle is into that schema, because we all struggle in some way. Some people don't have social media or streaming platforms because of simply the time wasted on those things. I don't remember who said it, but a convicting quote for me over the past few years has been, when you kill time, remember that it has no resurrection. Maybe all of these inputs are a problem for you and you watch shows that corrupt your mind, and maybe it's not. Maybe those things are okay for you, and that's fine. Maybe they're not. If it is an issue, if it is feeding your desire, get rid of it. John Owen said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Take a moment and think about your life. What is your biggest sin struggle right now? What things do you do each day that feed that desire? What things do you do to combat that desire? Write it down. Return to it. Pray about it. But keep your head on straight and notice the point of the passage. We can't just cut things out and expect holiness. Even if you do all those things, if you don't abide in Christ, all of that will be for nothing. You'll find a way to sin. (laughs) Replace those things with activities that help you to abide in Christ. Spend time in God's word, praising God for who he is, confessing your sin, conforming your life to his word. Don't just read it to check a box, but engage with God's word. Spend time in prayer, drawing near to God in Christ and laying your anxieties before him. Spend time in the church, the body of Christ, Christ's bride. A good way to do that would be prayer and worship next week. Another opportunity to gather with believers, worship God, be encouraged, be edified by the body, and to learn how to pray. One of the best ways to learn how to pray is to pray with other people. Hear what they're saying. Hear how they pray. Be encouraged by them. Don't skip prayer and worship to go watch a movie. Don't skip small group to go sit on the couch for two hours. Prioritize Christ's body. Spend time in your community, sharing the gospel, serving those who don't know Christ. All of those things should be doing. Abide in Christ. Stop abiding in the culture and abide in Christ. As you abide in Christ, the Father will prune you and make you more fruitful. If the culture and the ways of the world is all that you've ever known, don't fear. God has not given us a spirit of cowardice, but of power and of love and of self-control. 2 Timothy 1.7 Don't be cowardly. Treat sin as serious and get over your preoccupation with comfort and entertainment. Give that up and abide in Christ. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Whose counsel do you walk in? The counsel of the world or the counsel of God in his word? The psalmist says that the blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. The psalm continues showing the outcome of this meditation on God's word as it says that the blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Notice those same pictures of yielding fruit, leaves withering, 
Doesn't that sound amazing? I'll read Psalm 1, 1 to 4 for you again. Close your eyes. Picture yourself as this person. Blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. May we be these blessed men and women who turn away from the evil ways of our world and run to Christ. May we be these men and women planted firmly in the vine, being pruned by the Father. How do you do that each day? For some of you, that'll be completely new. Maybe you don't know where to start with spiritual disciplines. Here are a few hints. Number one, make time. If you only spend time with the Lord in free moments of the day, you won't spend much time with him at all. Our culture is designed to fill the cracks of our lives with endless streams of media so that we don't have a free moment to think. So be intentional. Make time for God. Number two, make a plan. Sometimes we can think that the most spiritual thing we can do is to be spontaneous. That's a lie. The Spirit can work as much in our planning as he can in our spontaneity. Don't use the Spirit to excuse laziness. Make a Bible reading plan and a prayer schedule. Our church actually has some great resources for this. Pastor Michael has posted them on the homepage of the Church Center app. It'll be on that main page. You'll see a few links, and it's titled Abide Sermon Resources. Download those. Use them. There'll be prayer helps, devotional time helps, and things to help you think rightly about abiding and renewing your mind. One especially helpful one for the practical doing of the disciplines will be Qualities of a Quality Quiet Time. It's a PDF. Use that as a template for your time with God. Additionally, you might benefit from further study on the disciplines in the form of a book. One exceptional book on that is Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life by Donald Whitney. And there are many other resources out there too. We would do well to draw on the resources of the church to help us in our lives. And my final hint, and this is important as well, don't view it all as a checklist. That will make you think of it as just more work to do. It'll feed that feeling of, drudgery and boring work. Delight in it. See it as an essential part of your life because it is. See it as the place in which you abide in Christ, as a branch receiving life and nutrients from the vine. Abide in Christ and receive life and nutrients for your spiritual life. Abide in Christ and bear fruit. If you're not a believer in Christ today, there is hope. You don't have to remain a slave to the world's futile ways. You don't have to remain a slave to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Have you noticed that there's no purpose in all of those things? Have you noticed that there's a big hole in your life? People try to fill that with many things. Sex, money, fame, glory. Drowning out the tears in whatever it is. None of those things satisfy. Only Christ can truly satisfy. Because we were created to glorify God. And notice that second part to enjoy him forever. Christ came to earth, lived a sinless life, and died a sinner's death on the cross. Christ took the weight of sin upon himself. He bore the wrath of God against sin and paid the price in place of sinners. Now by faith in him, you can be saved. By faith in him, you can be grafted to the vine, pruned by the Father, and be a fruit bearer that fulfills its purpose and brings glory to God. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ today. Christ is the source of life. Christ is the only source of life. 
So abide in him. The fruitful life is found by abiding in Christ. The joyful life is found by abiding in Christ. The powerful life is found by abiding in Christ. Nothing else can do this. The God-glorifying life is found by abiding in Christ. Think on these four truths from John 15 this week. God's objective is for you to bear fruit. God's means for your fruit-bearing is abiding in Christ. God's promise is to conform you to his will and draw you into closer relationship with him through prayer. And in all of this, number four, God's purpose is to be glorified in us. How are you abiding? I'll leave you with these words, finally, from Andrew Murray. All the branch possesses belongs to the vine. The branch does not exist for itself, but to bear fruit that can proclaim the excellence of the vine. It has no reason of existence except to be of service to the vine. This is a glorious image of the calling of the believer and the entireness of his consecration to the service of his Lord. Abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you now in awe of your greatness and your goodness. We stand before you examined by your word. We know that we have been found wanting. Your objective is for us to bear fruit. Help us to understand that and to seek that in our daily lives. Your appointed means for our fruit bearing is to abide in Christ. Remind us daily that we cannot please you on our own. Draw us ever closer to Christ. Remove the impediments to our abiding and teach us to abide. We praise you for your promise to conform us to your will and to draw us closer to you in prayer. And we echo your ultimate purpose. All glory be to you. Help us to remember that the chief end of man is to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. Be glorified in our lives and show us ultimate satisfaction in yourself. Let us find joy in the spiritual disciplines because through them we encounter you, our ultimate joy and satisfaction. Teach us to abide, Father, and cause us to bear fruit. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.